0: Please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Romans. As my uh, good friend Robert Greenberg would say, welcome back. Welcome back to Romans. After several months away from this book, uh, we resume making our way through it. Reading this morning, verses 18 through 25, and we'll be in this passage uh, the rest of this 8th chapter for a few weeks, I'm sure. Someone has described uh, the Bible as a diamond ring, with the book of Romans being the diamond, and Romans chapter 8 being the luster that explodes forth from the diamond may be the high point in many respects in the whole of Scripture. So begin with me as we read beginning at verse 18. And as you read, think, reflect, take this in. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of God given to us, his people. And we thank God for it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, having given us your word as we we pray uh, each week, now give us your spirit so that your word might live for us, help us, encourage us. Take your truth, Lord Jesus. Walk among us and press your truth into each heart according to each person's need. Do this, Lord Jesus, and we will praise you and thank you, and we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. In lots of Bibles, there is a break after verse 17 of chapter 8 and before verse 18 of chapter 8, but there isn't a break in Paul's thinking. He's not He's not coming to something new and different. He's not taking up a kind of an aside as he unpacks for us his gospel at this particular place. He's he's dealing with what would necessarily come to mind as people listen to the things that he said in these previous verses, verses 15 to 17. If all of this stuff is true about me, Uh, If God is my Father, if I am His adopted child, if He loves me, and if I know Him to be good, how do I account for this anguish? How do I account for these struggles, these pains? The word that you find in the text that's translated suffering in verse 18 is a kind of a generic term. It's, it's a word that describes any sort of evil that might befall a person, any calamity, any misfortune, any affliction, any suffering. How do I account for the fact that these things befall me? Several weeks ago, I made reference to a young couple who were part of our church in Orlando while he was a student at Reformed Theological Seminary. He was actually the first intern that we hired to work in the church. And I told you the story of the phone call that I received from Bill after he and his wife visited their doctor and saw the first sonogram of their twins. He called me to tell me that they were having twins. And when he told me that they were having twins, I said, and they're not joined at the hip, right? And he said, no. They're joined at the chest, and they share a liver and a six-chamber heart. The girls lived for several weeks. They died from complications resulting from a heart attack, in effect. That day after that service, at least two women approached me and talked about having lost children young children, at least two. I know there were two. It may have been more. If there is one thing that is common to us all, it's disappointment, frustration, suffering, sadness, heartache, trial. From the silly and mundane frustrations of life, like not being able to find my keys when I'm already running late. Some of you remember the book title from probably 30 years ago, If God Loves Me, Why Can't I Get My Locker Opened? (laughs) The mundane and irritating and frustrating things of life like that, to the life-altering and mind-numbing tragedies that people endure, the loss of a spouse or a child, the loss of one's health, whatever it is across the whole range of those things, suffering is a constant companion. Forty years ago, when I had first become a Christian, I saw a bumper sticker. Maybe you saw it, too. I've referred to it, taken from the old Simon and Garfunkel pop song, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Jesus is just like a bridge over troubled water. That has not been my experience in 35 years in the pastorate. Christians are not exempted from suffering. From loss, from disappointment, from heartache. And Paul recognizes that. And right in the midst of dealing with some of the most sublime and overwhelmingly glorious truths, things that are true of you, if you're a Christian this morning, if you have, if you've come to the place where you've, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, you've bowed twice, you've bowed before God as your creator who is holy, who is and who does dwell in light unapproachable. You have bowed before Him as Creator, acknowledging those things to be true of Him, and you have bowed before Him as Savior, acknowledging that in Jesus Christ, you have the Savior that you need. If you are a Christian this morning, you've done those things. And if you've done those things, these things that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8 are true of you. These supremely surpassing incomprehensibly glorious truths. These things are true of you. And in the midst of that, Paul addresses this matter of suffering. What I want to do is is try to take a kind of a 30,000 foot view of this passage and do three things. Give us three pegs, three ideas, three headings upon which to sort of hang this whole passage. And then in the next couple of weeks, drill down into some of the details. So to get us started as we think about this matter of suffering, here are three things, three ideas, three words, three pegs. A reminder, an explanation, and a hope. A reminder, an explanation, and a hope. First, the reminder. And this is what I've already begun To allude to, the thing that will keep you secure in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your difficulties, is remembering who you are. It is remembering who you are. Back up to verse 12. Listen to all of the language that Paul uses. He uses it over and over and over again in this chapter to underscore this big, big idea. An idea that in one sense is the apex, it is the height, it is the summit of everything we can think about with respect to being a Christian. It is the idea of our union with Christ. That we are united with Christ. Listen to Paul. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And then verse 21, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious freedom of the children of God. Do you hear that language over and over and over again? Children of God, sons of God, adopted by God, belonging to Him as your Father. Do you know what makes that possible? Do you know how it is possible that you can be called this morning, this day, the son or daughter of the God of heaven and earth? It is your union with Jesus Christ. It is by virtue of the fact that you are in Christ. We talk a lot, rightly, legitimately, about having Christ in us. Paul uses that language. Christ in you, the hope of glory. From Colossians, from Galatians, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's appropriate language. We talk about receiving Jesus Christ. But the Scriptures speak on on many, many, many dozens more occasions about you being in Jesus Christ. Over 150 times in the New Testament, the Christian is described as being in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved, in Jesus Christ. And Paul has outlined this idea back in chapter 5. And I'll just remind you of this. Again, this is a reminder. Remember who you are. He's outlined this idea. He set up for us this contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. And you remember in chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, that in Adam all die. If you are in Adam, you die. You die with Him. You are united to Him. And everything that came to pass because of Adam's sin, you inherit from Adam. You inherit a a proclivity in the direction of rebellion and sin. You inherit... From Adam, all of the indications, what what the philosophers have called and what Oz Guinness entitled a book after, you inherit the dust of death. It's over the whole of life. It touches everything. Little babies. My granddaughter Lucy is not innocent by virtue of her union with Jesus Christ. Give her enough time. All of the evidences of rebellion will manifest themselves. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are dead. Whether you're walking around or not, you are dead. But you see, Paul is saying to us, look if you have embraced Jesus Christ, that connection to Adam is now severed. There is a new union. You are united to Jesus Christ. You are in Him. Chapter 6, the old self has been crucified, died and buried with Jesus Christ. And the new self is Jesus Christ to whom you are connected and united. And in that connection, You possess sonship. Now remember from several months ago that when Paul uses this language, being children of God, being a son of God, remember that he's using two different words. He's using them intentionally because they describe two different things. When he says you are the child of God, that is a term of endearment. And when he uses the language of sonship, that is a term of honor and privilege and standing. And as a Christian this morning, the thing that is true of you is that you are honored and you are cherished. You are honored and you are cherished. And you are honored and cherished By a Father who has sent His Son, His beloved Son, into the world to disconnect you from the death that is in Adam and reconnect you to the life that is in the triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. You are honored and you are cherished by the God of heaven and earth. Most of you know I go to Africa Every year I remember the first trip, maybe I've told this story, I remember the first trip these pastors and wives wanted to know about my children. And in that culture, they identified children by birth order because the firstborn is still the honored child, the privileged child. Tell us about your firstborn. They also have a thing about sons. So that made this whole thing sort of uncomfortable for me. Tell us about your firstborn. Oh, my firstborn daughter. Oh, a daughter. Oh, Well, tell us about your secondborn, your firstborn son. Oh, well, my secondborn is a daughter. Well, I mean, it went this way. Tell us about your thirdborn and your firstborn son. You see, it's still woven into their culture that the son is honored. But in the Christian life, by virtue of our union with the favored, cherished, and honored Son, those who belong to Him enjoy the honor that Jesus, the eternally firstborn Son, enjoys. That's what this 17th verse says. Is all about. It's, it's all about being an heir with Jesus Christ. What he possesses, you possess. I want you to think with me about this. It's really rather stunning. By virtue, listen to this. This fight with me about it if you want to. But this is the implication of what we're suggesting here. Everything that can be said of Jesus Christ touching his humanity, not touching his divinity. He is this unique person in all of human history. He is this one person with these two natures, divine and human. We don't confuse the two. The church fought all kinds of battles and had all kinds of debates to try to articulate the mystery of the union of these two natures in the one person, Jesus Christ. So what I'm about to say to you, I'm saying to you, we don't confuse the human and the divine in Jesus, and we do not attribute to ourselves things that are true of Jesus with respect to His divinity. But with respect to His Humanity, everything that can be said of Jesus Christ can be said and is said of you. Everything that is true of Jesus touching his humanity is or will be true of you. Is Jesus accepted by the Father? Is Jesus delighted in by the Father? Is Jesus positively pure and righteous before the Father? Is Jesus victorious over sin and death? Is Jesus now reigning in glory with the body, transformed by the power of God, the very same body in which He walked this earth in His days of ministry. Same body, but glorified. They ate breakfast with Him. They recognized Him. They knew Him after His resurrection. Think about it. Pray about it this week. Meditate on it. Find some time to reflect on these things. Everything that is said of Jesus, is true of you, everything that is true of Jesus either is true of you right now or will be true. Remember who you are. You are the child of Almighty God by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ. Remember that in the midst of of your struggles, your trials, your disappointments, your heartaches, the uncertainties that are out there in front of you, this thing remains unalterably true. You are the cherished and honored child of the God of heaven and earth. J.I. Packer has said the foundational blessing of the Christian life is justification. The highest blessing is adoption, is adoption. That's what Paul is saying here. Remember who you are. Here's the second thing. An explanation. An explanation for the suffering. Verse 18. Paul says, The sufferings of this present time. Of this present time. What's he talking about? He's not talking about his personal sufferings in his particular present time. He is using biblical language, and this is a wonderful opportunity for me to invite you to come this evening because we're going to look at some of this language. He is using biblical language. He is referring not to his day and time. He is referring, when he uses that language, to the whole period between rebellion and restoration the whole of human history between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. This present age, this present time, plagued as it is by all of the ravaging effects of Adam's rebellion and fall. Paul says in verses 19 and 20 that there is a curse that lays across the whole of the creation, that the whole of the creation is suffering a bondage to decay. The creation is groaning, anxiously waiting for your final salvation, for the disclosure, the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Again, the dust of death is across and over the whole of the creation. The creation groans and we groan. And we'll look at this more, but let me just say it now. It'll be said again. It has been said before and it'll be said again. If someone suggests, even hints to you, that because you are a Christian, there ought be no more groaning Go the other direction. Run away. Get as far away from that person as you possibly can. Let me suggest to you again, we'll look at this in greater detail, let me suggest to you, it is precisely because you have the first fruits of the Spirit that you groan. That's why you groan. Because you know in your heart of hearts, this isn't enough. This turns to dust in the wind. The creation groans. You groan. Jesus groaned. Jesus, who is the perfection of righteousness. Jesus, who is the perfection of trust in God. Jesus, groaned. Do you need a text? Hebrews 4. Verse 5. Sorry, Hebrews 5. Verse 7. Listen to this. This should be profoundly encouraging to you. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, but who did not. It's not there in the text, but we all know it, don't we? We all know that this Jesus who offered up cries and tears and pleas that he might be saved from death was not saved from death. But because he was heard, and he was heard because of his reverence, and although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, who entrust themselves to him. Jesus endured suffering, Jesus groaned. And because Jesus groaned, Hebrews 4. Verse 14, because Jesus groaned, because Jesus was vindicated by his constant entrusting himself to the Father, we now have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And so let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is the author of this letter saying to us in connection with what the apostle is saying? Jesus has walked this path before you. And remember this, Jesus never calls you to do anything that he hasn't first done himself. He walked the path of suffering and trial and disappointment and heartache. He lost his friend Lazarus. He saw his friends abandon him in his moment of greatest need. Jesus groaned. And Not only did Jesus groan, but verse 26 of chapter 8, note this, we'll come back to it, the Spirit groans as well. Did you catch that? There are three groaners in Romans 8. The creation, you, and the Spirit. What do you suppose it is that the Spirit is groaning after? I'm going to suggest to you that this is what the Spirit is groaning after. Yes, the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that are inarticulate, that are too deep, too beyond our vocabulary, our ability to articulate. What do you suppose it is over all of it that the Spirit is groaning about? Here it is. How absolute is the union between you and Jesus Christ? How indivisible is the union between you and Jesus Christ? To what extent does Jesus identify with you as brothers and sisters, love you as brothers and sisters, delight in you as brothers and sisters? To this extent, He has given you His Spirit as a foretaste of what awaits you, and the Spirit Himself will continue to groan until Jesus has what He wants, His family together. The very Spirit of God groans, dwelling in the hearts, in the souls of the Beloved of Jesus Christ. What's Paul talking about when he talks about this present time? He's talking about this time in which we find the dust of death death settling over everything. We are in the midst of this time where there is groaning and there is aching and there is longing. And there isn't anything in this creation, nothing in this world that can take away the ache. It is relentless. It is the longing for home. It is the longing for home. And this life will be plagued by troubles and by suffering until we are home. So we have an explanation. We have an explanation, if I can summarize, a twofold explanation. The sin of Adam explains why we are where we are. And the groaning in our souls is, in a sense, rebellion against it. And an expression of the deep longing to be at home and to know the shalom and peace of God's presence. So a reminder, this is who you are, sons and daughters, honored and cherished children of your father. There's an explanation for why we groan and why there's so much sadness. And then there's a hope and this one is going to get a sermon all to itself, unless you want to stay past lunch. Here's the third thing. Paul says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And the ESV has this little preposition, too. But if you read the commentators, the commentators will say that in the original, it's not that clear. And what Paul is really suggesting is not that we will be spectators to something, but we will be participants in something. We won't just see the glory of God, we will be the glory of God. What awaits us is the recovery of what was lost because of the sin of Adam. And there was so much that was lost. Intimacy with God. Intimacy with one another. Intimacy with the creation. But the thing that was lost, in addition to all of the moral and ethical things that were lost, righteousness and holiness and all of the rest, the distinguishing feature of human beings is their ability to bear glory. To reflect the glory of God. That's what was lost. That's why Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness after their rebellion. Something was lost. They were naked before the fall. They were naked after the fall. But before the fall, they were glory bearers wrapped up in the refulgent splendor of the brilliance of God's glory. And they were stripped naked of it. And they were undone. And as you trace that theme of glory through the whole of the Bible, land at Exodus 32 and 33, what is the thing that Moses asks for? Let me see your glory. No, Moses, you can't. If you saw my glory, you would be crushed because you are not constitutionally capable of bearing the weight of that glory. What is it that the high priest is clothed in, robed in? If you look at Exodus 28, verses 2 and 40, God says, create all of these garments, all of these garments for the high priest for glory and for beauty. What was the high priest? The high priest was a picture, certainly first, of Jesus, the great high priest who is clothed in glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. And that glory in which Jesus is clothed in His humanity is the glory that awaits those who are united to Jesus. So that John can say, in the third chapter of his first letter, this simply staggering thing, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You see what happens? You cannot see the glory of God. You cannot see the glory of the risen Christ. John, in the presence of the glorified Christ, fell on his face as a dead man. But you see what he is saying here? That when we see Him, what's left out is you will be so transformed, so perfected, so completed, so entirely restored, that you will be able to bear the weight of beholding that glory You will be clothed in the glory of Jesus Christ. Now here's the connection between that day of glory and what is going on for you right now. This is what is going on for you and for me right now. The connection between your suffering and that glory is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight and momentary affliction is working for you. This slight and momentary affliction is working for you. That's the language in the text. Is working for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we look not at the things that are seen, but we look to things that are unseen. Do you understand the calculus? Do you understand the math? The simple equation. Your suffering is the means by which, the instrument by which the God of glory is working for you, in you, to your good and eternal weight of glory. We think that our, that our struggles are crushing us and killing us. They are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. It is actually the case that heartache, disappointment, frustration, discouragement, loss are the instruments in the hands of a good, loving, and holy God. And by those instruments, He is preparing me to be clothed in His own glory. I will tell you I am not at the place where I can embrace the small little frustrations and discouragements of my life in the way that the Apostle Paul embraced his. I'm a coward. I like comfort. I am a pain avoider. But as I hear the Apostle Paul connect these ideas, my present suffering and future glory, it helps me, if ever so slightly, to embrace the pains, the disappointments, the heartaches of my life, understanding that they are precisely the things that God is using to prepare me to be clothed in glory. That's the calculus, friend. It is absolutely counterintuitive. It is absolutely contrary to the way the world thinks. The world lusts after glory. The world lusts after power. The world lusts to be known and seen and bowed before those whom God will glorify. He will lead, not on a bridge over troubled waters, but he will lead in the steps that Jesus has walked before them. Steps that go through trouble. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, God's people, God's people will say, it's a great Robert Redford film. Jeremiah Johnson, at the end of the film, after he's lost everything, the wise old mountain man says, Pilgrim, Pilgrim, was it worth the trouble? And the pilgrim says, Trouble? What trouble? These light and momentary afflictions are working for you an eternal weight of glory. And when you taste that glory, it will make the sufferings of this present time fade into nothingness.